As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Ryan Bailey and this is The Weekend Review, your one-stop shop for the action from the cop and beyond. (laughs) Joining me today is a man who listens to 1970s German disco pop to get himself ready for show recordings, Taylor Rockwell. Hello, Taylor. Hello. Always, man. You need some Rasputin in your life. Do I? Are we talking about Russian political figures or like songs here? More so the song. You, You don't need... The wizard slash crazy person uh, controlling your life. No, I don't think that's a good idea. Uh, but you should link, listen to that and uh, Genghis Khan as well if you want to hear a 70s German disco band singing about Genghis Khan. Yeah, I don't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and joining Taylor and I is a man who listens. <laughs> that is correct. That is the correct response. <laughs> joining Taylor in his German disco pop ways and myself is a man who doesn't listen to that kind of thing, but who instead joy- enjoys wearing T-shirts featuring misspelled names of German teams. <laughs> it's Graham Ruthven, another in-joke we were talking about before this show started. Graham, how are you? I am good. Uh, well, I was in a good mood until my yeah my, my uh, Oakland Ro- Roots St. Pauli T-shirt came through with uh, St. Paul. On, on on the logo, which, as you pointed out, is uh, the Minnesota version of, of that T-shirt. So, yes. Uh... Or you just got St. Paul's sweatshirt, his customized sweatshirt. And if so, that's a big get. That's a big yeah. get, <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe they sent me that by accident. That yeah. was a curated piece, and somehow yeah. it's ended up in my hands. I mean, result commodity there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, beyond the unfortunate misspelling or the lack of I uh, in your T-shirt, Graham, can you explain what this garment is? Uh, Oakland Roots and St. Pauli, some kind of collaboration? Yeah, so I, I, I believe it's uh, uh, some, a lot of the profits go to social justice campaigns mm-hmm. So in, in, in Oakland, I think. So I, I shouldn't complain too much. I do feel it's a bit mean-spirited to, to complain about it. I'm not about to ask for, for a refund because it is for a good, a good cause. But um, yeah, St. Pauli, Oakland Roots, they're both like cool cool clubs. I love the Oakland Roots um, logo. I spoke to Matthew Wolf, who designed it for a piece for The Guardian that's out today mm. about MLS rebrands. So it's kind of like right up my street, that sort of thing. So um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a nice product. And despite the the uh, the error in the logo, I would uh, urge you to, to, to check out what Oakland Roots, Roots do. They're a good organization. I, I, the most interesting thing about this, Graham, is you've obviously paid to import it um, to, to the UK, and you could have chosen to buy, say, a, a luxury car, but instead you paid the post-Brexit <laughs> import tax on a on a on a parcel to come to your home. Yeah, that's right. Bre- Brexit times are tough from important stuff from the, from the US. <laughs> it, co- it literally costs more than the t-shirt, the the import uh, tax. So, yeah, thank you, Brexit. Yeah, that's but guys, not- I heard I heard that VAT was an EU institution. Uh, that that's what you guys were really suffering against. I'm not sure what the EU we were we were suffering against from the EU, but people seem really riled up about it. Oh boy! I just I saw that that on Twitter this weekend was people complaining about that, and then other people being like, "That's not an EU thing. We instituted that." Like, ah. So anyway, hi. How are we doing? This is a fun way to start. I'm sorry. And a, fu- a fun thing for Americans, by the way, VAT or VAT is 20% in the UK, and sales tax here, well, in 
in Carolina, it's like seven and a half percent. So that's uh, that's another fun thing that the people in the UK pay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you and were it, talking about what it costs to fill up your car before we came on air, and that has disgusted me more than anything else. <laughs> Thirty dollars. They wouldn't even yeah. allow me in the, the petrol station if I only had thirty dollars. <laughs> well, actually, that's a rough system. To be fair, Graham, if you brought dollars in there, yeah. those things yeah. are worth a lot more in the UK these days <laughs> due to your uh, very weak currency. So maybe they would, uh, maybe they'd give you another luxury car for that thirty dollars these days. Who's to say? Oh, all these funny political jokes are a very wonderful way to kick off this show. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be. <laughs> this is almost as bad as talking about the weather up front. <laughs> But by the way, a weather anecdote that happened oh, this boy. weekend. Uh, I oh, was no. in I was in Savannah this weekend watching Charlotte FC's academy, and I got sunburned. I got a huge sunburn uh, from being down there. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this because it is February and it's very cold and rainy where I am right now. Uh, I didn't prepare adequately, and the bad thing about getting sunburn uh, these days, gentlemen, is that I was wearing a mask for the whole day. So now I have a huge white patch <laughs> on the bottom half of my face and a huge red sort of uh, angry uh, skin tone on the top half of my face. It's not a good look. So don't don't go out there, kids, uh, without your sun sunscreen um, if you're going to be wearing a mask. Is my advice to everybody. Just grow a beard real quick, Ryan. That'll solve it. <laughs> is that what you did? Is that what happened? Pretty to you? much. Yeah, exactly. I got sunburned once, and that was it for me when I was like 14. All oh, right, then. So we've done weather. We've done uh, yep. political discourse. Anything uh-huh. else before we get to the soccer? I, I mean, we get, let's just get into religion for a while and talk about who's <laughs> truly got it figured out. No, let's instead talk uh, maybe, maybe Premier League. Let's do that instead. That's yep. somehow maybe as controversial, but less controversial at the same time. Mm, indeed it is. Well, Premier League, is. Uh, we've got plenty of that coming up on today's show. We do have uh, Liverpool's uh, Mersey misery continuing against Everton. We've got Arsenal pretty much rolling over for Manchester City and West Ham cementing their status as the best team in London. Still feels like a weird sentence to say. Uh, Spurs very much not the best team in London. Uh, and I mentioned Liverpool Everton. We've got more derby action than a team managed by Wayne Rooney as well, because we've got the derby della Madonnina and mm-hmm. we've got the Revere derby as well. So three derbies to be covered from this strange weekend, because uh, we, this is a weekend where three, uh, the three leading teams in, Europe, in Europe's top five leagues, three of the leading teams in Europe's top five leagues lost. We had Bayern Munich losing to Eintracht Frankfurt. We had Atleti, Atletico Madrid losing to Levante and the aforementioned Liverpool losing to Everton, which is where we shall start our show too. 2-0 to Everton, this one finished. The 238th Merseyside derby. Uh, going into this one, I believe Jurgen Klopp was unbeaten in 12 meetings against Everton. And Everton hadn't won at Anfield since uh, 1743, says in my notes here. Uh, <laughs> and they have indeed won this match, uh, much against most people's expectations. Graham, where do we start with this one? It seems to me like this was the same team that started, at least, against Leipzig. Um, Jurgen Klopp. Fancy any rotation any time soon in this squad? What do we think? <laughs> well, it, it, it's funny you mention that. It's not the first time I've I've thought that about Klopp. I mean, he's he's complained about um, so many different things this season, and one of the big things he's complained about is is fixture congestion. And yet, he's he seems to have played the the same fullbacks. I think the fullbacks are obviously so important to Liverpool. Um, you'd probably want to rotate them a little bit. He's played the same front three in in, in, in every single game, and I think. You're seeing the the fatigue element of that when you mention those two games, the Leipzig game, which I, I thought was one of Liverpool's best performances of the season, if not the best performance they've put in this season. And then obviously the the, the performance against Everton, where they were just flat throughout the game, didn't really look like they were going to score or get anything out of that game. So um, yeah, you're right. Obviously injuries have been a massive factor. You can't ignore that with Liverpool season, and obviously Jordan Henderson picking up a, an injury in this game as well, just to make things to make matters worse for Liverpool. But yeah, it, it, it feels like there's more at play than just injuries with Liverpool right now. It feels like everything's just sagging a little bit flat and a little bit of rotation would uh, would would surely get a bit more life into them. And, and you look at mm. Minamino scoring at Southampton, uh, scoring for Southampton, obviously joining them on loan from Liverpool in January. And you just wonder why why was this guy not given more of a chance? Like he, could, he could have freshened things up a little bit. He looks like a great player for Southampton. He does indeed. If you don't mind me picking into that comment about uh, the, the, the performance against Leipzig being the, uh, maybe one of the best of the season, what do you think the difference was between then, a matter of days ago, and this performance? And, I mean, when I look back at that Leipzig game, yes, they were pretty good, but they also got the win from two pretty bad defensive errors. Yeah, I just, I just felt the intensity was was the big difference. I know that's a really kind of intangible thing to say. It's not something you can kind of plot on a, on a, on a tactics board, but 
just the pressing from Liverpool against Leipzig, they, they weren't get really giving them a moment on, on on the ball. It just felt like they were really wired into that game. And in this this match, which is a derby match, they should they should be up for it. Again, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to speak in these terms because they are in, in sort of intangible qualities, but there's just no energy at all to Liverpool in this game. They felt really flat. I mean, how many times was... Was Jordan Pickford really tested? I know he had a, a decent game and made a, a couple of good saves, mm. certainly one from Jordan Henderson, I think, but it, it didn't feel like Liverpool were battering down the door at any point in this game. In fact, Everton were the ones in, in, the, in the closing stages that had the urgency, and obviously they, they got the, the second goal to, to clinch things. So really peculiar um, whiplash from Liverpool between that game at Leipzig and then this performance against Everton. Hey, yeah. Graham, I'm glad you, you brought that up because I think that that is, I really couldn't figure out like what it was that was so odd to me about this game. I have some specific things relating to the screen itself, which I'll explain later. But for now, I think you're absolutely right that this felt heading in like it was the this unstoppable attacking force, at least it has been in the past. And then the way Everton set up with the kind of back five, it felt like an immovable object. And here we go, unstoppable versus immovable. And then Liverpool felt sort of pretty stoppable pretty consistently, and they didn't seem to have that that intensity, that willingness to go at Everton, make them uncomfortable, pull them out of position, trying different things. There wasn't that, for lack of a better term, swagger that we've seen from Liverpool in the past couple seasons. I think a big part of that is fatigue. I also think... I disagree with you guys a little bit because I look at that bench and there are good players on there, but I feel like they're players that Klopp doesn't entirely trust to do the job that that ideal starting 11 does. And so maybe that's maybe that's a negative on him. I'm not sure, but it feels like he looks at that bench and thinks like, ah, man, let me try another central midfielder real quick before I have to throw on Nat Phillips. Well, that's a problem in itself then, isn't it, Taylor? Yeah, I mean, it absolutely is. And, and I think like... You you see then like I, I we can get into Nat Phillips' performance on the whole if we want, but I I felt like in the 81st minute I think in the play that leads to the penalty when he does sub on uh, Nat Phillips coming on for the injured Jordan Henderson. Mm-hmm. He tries to make a play, over-pursues, then isn't fast enough to get back into position. And that felt like a, like, welcome to the big leagues. Like, this is going to be tough for you. So I understand how bringing in new players and getting them kind of up to speed with the way Liverpool want to play can be challenging. But then we have Ozan Kabak in there already playing consistently for Liverpool. So it's not just that Klopp is hesitant to try new things. I think it is maybe a depth issue, a fatigue issue, an injury issue, and a confidence issue sort of all rolled into one. But it's a challenge they should be able to meet, Taylor, I think is the issue, isn't it? That Liverpool, they should be able to ha- have a bit more squad depth. They should, and Jürgen Klopp should have a bit more trust in the players who aren't his ideal first starting eleven. I mean, we, 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 you can argue we've seen that with Man City. You can argue you've seen that with other elite European teams. It's, is it just a, is, is, are we just going to say this is Jürgen Klopp's trust issues in the fact that he, does, <laughs> he only trusts a very small amount of players? I mean, I'm, like, I'm definitely speculating here, but it, it is the... In my mind, like the downside to having that very established front three who on their day can destroy defenses and tear people apart. But if you become so reliant on them that you're scared to try or you're hesitant even to just have like Jordan Shakiri start a game because it can break up uh, like the synchronized nature of that attack. I think it's the downside to having the kind of consistent starters in the same spots. Like, I don't really begrudge him at the same time, though, because it's a very good front three who know how mm. to work really, really well. But does Divock Origi come in and do the exact same thing as Roberto Firmino? Probably not. I think he's probably not like quite at that level. He's not far off it necessarily, but I think it's enough of a gap that maybe that's why Klopp doesn't want to start him, wants to go with him as an impact sub, but then in these types of situations when you're down, you can't then have the security sub. Maybe last season they could. They could bring off Firmino in the 55th or 60th minute and give him a little bit of a rest. This time round, not so much. Yeah, well, Graham, why don't we talk about that? We had um, Calvert-Lewin coming on as a pretty impactful sub for, for Everton and, uh, and and Liverpool not making a, a similar change. It seems like uh, uh, Diego Jota can't come back soon enough. But Firmino, who has never scored against Everton, seemed he had a few chances, Graham, that he didn't quite convert. And I was thinking Calvert-Lewin would have taken that in a few in a few instances. Yeah, Firmino, I I think the the game on, on Saturday... It was the first time I've really thought maybe Roberto Firmino has peaked as a player. Players peak, obviously he's only 29 years old, so you, you know he's, he's not terribly old, but you look at some players that, that maybe peak a little bit uh, earlier. You know, The first one that comes to mind is obviously Wayne Rooney's peak as a player seemed to, to be before his, his 30th birthday. And, and, and the complaints, the thing that makes me think that is just 
with Firmino, the complaints that are being made against him are just cropping up time and time again. And it's really been this way. I mean, it was this way all of 2020, even when Liverpool were strolling to the, the Premier League title. There were complaints that Roberto Firmino wasn't wasn't uh, performing at the same level as, as, as Manny and Salah. That led to people suggesting that Timo Werner might come in and, and, and maybe replace him last summer. Um, obviously, that didn't materialise. But th- those 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 suspicions over Firmino have carried carried over into this season. I know there was a, a a few games ago it seemed like something clicked for him, but now he's gone back to to missing these chances. And Liverpool, I know he's not in that team as a as a goal scorer, but it, it feels like what he was offering before he's he's not offering that as well. You know, he 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 was someone to play off at Manny and 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 Salah needed him in, in that attacking structure. And at the moment, it just feels like he's not scoring goals. He's not facilitating Manny and Salah in the way that he was previously so I'm, I'm not terribly sure what he's what he's offering in this Liverpool team right now and you're right to mention Jota because I think that's the one player that looking at the start of the season he was he was freshening things up for Liverpool he was he hit the ground running scored a lot of goals and you felt like maybe Firmino might lose his place in the, in, in the Liverpool team but Jota being injured he's he's not taking the opportunity to, to prove himself and, and as I say Saturday was it was one of my thoughts in the game was, is this Firmino now coming down the other side of the mountain in terms of his form? Can I can I offer an like a, th- a theory on Firmino and then you all can tell me if I'm just being too kind to him? No. Sure. All right. Ryan says no. Graham <laughs> says yes. I'm going to do it uh, with half energy. Uh, basically, I, I feel like Firmino, like it's, he's never been, in my mind, their goal threat. And you look at like last season, I think he has eight or nine goals in the league. The year before that, it's like 10 or 12. It's not... He's not like the goal scorer. It's not the Harry Kane to me. It's the he does a lot of dropping in, linking up, moving out of space, occupying other space so that somebody else can then move around. Like he does a lot of that work. And in my mind, it's sort of, Graham, you're probably right that if, if he's not doing it as cohesively, then the attack does sputter a bit. But I also think that with the idea that he's not really a a goal-scoring number nine, I don't feel like that's his number one responsibility to this team, if you then suddenly desperately need goals and you need your number nine to be a goal scoring forward to some extent I feel like you're asking him to do two different things simultaneously and to Ryan saying no and Graham saying yes it becomes very hard to thread that needle <laughs> sorry I'm being, I'm being a bit naughty today um why don't we talk about the penalty incident as well because wait, wait what, what, what do you think of that one though or am I being too generous to him I don't think, no, I think that's probably I, I think that's probably spot on um okay. Yeah, I, I just think with with Liverpool that their attacking structure is is so dependent on the structure that I think you, that you you're probably right to to focus on 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 those things. Yeah, there we are. Ryan, back to you. I don't interrupt incident. anymore. <laughs> no, please do. Please erupt <laughs> with abandon, uh, Tete. Um, the the penalty incident. Uh, interesting. Some some people saying no, that that wasn't a penalty. That was nothing. And then others saying. Why wasn't that a red card? I kind of err towards the latter here. This is uh, yeah. this is um, Trent Alexander-Arnold sort of going down, went to ground, sort of missed the tackle completely, and then as a result kind of obstructed a goal-scoring opportunity with the follow-through. And that feels not a million miles away from what David Lewis did against Wolves when he got the red card. So is there any reason why um, this wasn't uh, more severely punished for Trent in this instance? And um, this was where I think um, Kavanaugh, the ref, sort of w- w- wandered off and looked at the monitor, maybe for one and a half seconds before yeah. <laughs> making his mind up. So he obviously, uh, he obviously had his, his uh, intentions set before looking at the uh, screen there. But um, any thoughts on that, uh, Graham? Yeah, I mean, when when he walked to to the screen, I, I I thought he was going to check the red card. There was absolutely no question in my mind it was a penalty because if you so did Trent Alexander Arnold, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you know, I I get why some people might say it's not a penalty because there is an element of of misfortune to it in that Alexander Arnold is in the motion of a slide tackle for kind of the first phase of the shot, if you follow what I mean, yeah. and then and then and but through that motion, he then you know, kind of careers into uh, Calvert-Lewin, who is about to finish into a, an empty net. And and so it's, a, 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 looking at the law, it's a denial of a clear goal-scoring opportunity without an attempt to play the ball. And that mm. is a red card. Right. So I, I don't understand why that wasn't given. So I think, I don't have a defense. All I can say is that I think when Alexander-Arnold goes for that initial slide slide tackle, the idea would be... By the way, Graham, I apologize that you both have to call the sport soccer on this show, and then you have to hear things like slide tackle. I promise I won't say. What's the one that infuriates Brits? Is it outside back? Is that what you all don't like? 
Uh, I, yeah, right. I'm not so keen on that. I've not heard that <laughs> one before. The one that is nails yeah. in a chalkboard for me is cleats. Cleats. Ah, yeah. Well, so Trent Alexander-Arnold slides in cleats first, and uh, <laughs> and doesn't really do that. But I guess the only argument in my mind would be that he's he's making the initial challenge and then like is there like his body is physically present when the secondary contact happens that leads to the penalty and maybe the official is interpreting that as like he's not doing it intentionally because he was going for the first tackle he was playing the ball and then he's still there when the contact occurs but to Ryan's point that's the same thing with David Luis it's not like he meant to to clip so I was really confused him checking the monitor I guess to me, clarified it a little bit just because I think he was checking to make sure it was a penalty and wasn't checking to make sure it should have been a red card. So maybe that's where his mindset was, was I want to make sure I should have given this as a pen, which he did. But I, I feel like that was pretty clear. I, I was also in the this feels like it's going to be a red card for Alexander Arnold, and it was not. Got away with that one, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, by the way, pluralizing offside to offsides. That's the ah, one yes, that kind of gets me. Of course. Is that that's what they do in the NFL, right? You call it offside. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where it comes from. Okay. Uh we should probably give uh we should probably heap some praise on Everton here oh, yeah. for a very, very good performance. I mean the back line was superb. Tom Davies in the middle thought was wonderful here. Uh yeah, Decore thought had a really good game here. Uh, Jordan Pickford, we mentioned a pretty massive game. England's number one, never in doubt. Um but <laughs> Can I can I sing Hamas Rodriguez's praises for a moment? Oh my gosh, and only if you lavish praise on that assist for that goal. Oh, I will. But it's it's I love that goal so much, but the reason why I love the goal so much, I like wrote down the sequence of this one because it was so funny to me. The first goal, for people who haven't seen it, it starts sort of with an Everton throw-in, and it's taken by uh, Coleman. He throws it down the line. I'm just going to go through this really quickly because it made me laugh so hard. But it's a Coleman throw long, an Andy Robertson header back up the field. Tiago then tries to head it. It's a bad header. DeCorey yep. comes through. And, like, the ball still hasn't touched the ground. DeCorey comes through and lobs it forward. Then Ozan Kabak heads it back out. Then DeCorey heads it back. The ball has still not touched the ground. And then DeCorey heads it to James Rodriguez, who basically is just like, you peasants, and brings the ball down with, like, a rocket leg up in the air, brings it down, and then plays in Richarlison, who finishes perfectly. And I just love the James Richarlison, like... You children, we'll show you how to play this game. <laughs> I also enjoyed that a few minutes later, the exact sequence, pretty much the exact sequence happens again. Hamas brings it down with the same sort of touch and just gets crushed by Ozan Kabak, like absolutely cleared <laughs> out. And that felt a little bit like like the retaliation in the NFL where a wide receiver catches the touchdown, the next play he just gets lit up because the defense wants to like send a message. It felt that way. I don't think the message really worked because Hamas continued to be very good. But that goal made me laugh over and over and over again. That was that was wonderful stuff. And by the way, I think Tiago deliberately missed that uh, missed oh, in that yeah. sequence because he realized he was going to play the ball forward, and that's not what he does anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you all you all have like fully corrupted me. That I went from, and maybe I just bought into the hype too much. It did occur to me. Not just because of this game that, like, maybe, just maybe, the hype machine was really in full effect when it comes to Tiago. Because, like, there are just some moments where I'm like, if that were any other player in that moment trying what he tried, like, that, that I would be yelling. If that were an American, I would be fully embarrassed and, and trying to defend them but failing. It was a really bad header. It was a really bad decision. It was not... A strong moment for Thiago in this one. It was not indeed, but this was a strong moment for Everton, as I mentioned there. Uh, before we move on from this game, Graham, it seems like Everton play very well against big sides, and then they'll go and lose twice to Newcastle. They'll lose to Fulham, and sort of do well against, uh, do less well against sort of bottom half teams. Is it something about their setup? Do you think that makes them perform better against sort of more expansive sides? I'm using the word expansive. I'm not sure why I'm doing that, but you know what I mean, Graham. Yeah, that would be the frustrating thing if I was an Everton fan. One of my best pals, actually, is an Everton fan, and and that's the first thing he said after the game to me was, "What? where was this performance against Fulham, I want to say? Is that who they lost to? That's right. Uh, Yeah, recently. Where was this performance against Fulham? Um, So, yeah, and and I think that just speaks to how this may seem a little bit harsh after such a big big win, win, but it it was also in my head seeing the celebrations. I don't know if you've seen them. They, They were on Instagram or Snapchat or something from a a young player of the, the, the after the game and in, in the Everton dressing room and it's euphoric celebrations and yeah sure of course there it was their, you know, the club's first win at Anfield for 1999 I'm not saying don't celebrate a win over a rival but that coupled with the fact that Everton only 
kind of show up for the the big games just to me shows that they're not quite there yet they're not they're not the big club that they want to be when when they get to that level of consistency and when they win at Anfield and yeah sure of course celebrate it a little bit but maybe there's a story of Mason Holgate waking up in his kit the next day it was in the Athletic he he hadn't mm-hmm. changed out of his out of his mm-hmm. kit until the the Sunday and I know I know that's funny and and, and I'm not going too hard on him but I, I think that's maybe the sign of a club that's not a big club yet sorry Everton but I feel like the day that you come away with it from Anfield with a win and and you just kind of nod and acknowledge it and move on is the day that Everton can really start to fulfill their ambitions don't get too big for your boots Everton that's the message from Graham Rutherford uh as we conclude with that game Everton uh, that was their first win at Anfield since September 99 by the way the last in, in between that win and this one uh Blackpool have risen from the fourth tier to the Premier League they won at Anfield themselves, and then they went back to the fourth tier again. So that's how that's a, that's quite a journey that uh, Everton have not been on during that period. Uh, let's move on uh, to Arsenal against Manchester City right after these important commercial messages. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. We are back. Arsenal against Manchester City. 1-0 this finish to the visitors. Manchester City have equaled the record for consecutive away wins by an English top-flight team across all competitions, which is at 11, which was previously set by Pep Guardiola's side between May and November 2017. They are back to sort of that imperious best that we saw during that period. But I wouldn't say this was a game I would want to go back and watch twice. Um, Manchester City looked sort of pretty good in the first seven or eight minutes, I would say. Lots of energy, quite fast on the break. It was like, you, you know how um, there's that saying about Man City, how they look like they're playing a different sport sometimes. And it kind of looked like that, certainly from the opening yeah. to me, that like Arsenal just weren't doing much, created nothing and were quite passive, which continued throughout the game for Arsenal, incidentally. And, and City were just on this different plane uh, for the start. But then once they got the goal, it felt like they sort of dropped into second gear and Arsenal didn't make them get out of second gear for the rest of the game. Taylor, does that sound about right? I think, yes, mostly. I think it's still, like, it's a little harsh maybe in that regard on Man City to say they dropped into second gear. Uh, I will own and be embarrassed by the fact that I don't drive manual, so I don't know what <laughs> that means necessarily, but I'm assuming it means they weren't performing as well. And, and I think this, if anything, reminded me of the Pep days with Barcelona with, like, the the tiki-taka in that, like, once they went up 1-0, it was like, well, that's the game over because no one's getting the ball back. In this one, I felt <laughs> like they went up 1-0, and the shape that they were utilizing, which was, like, on paper a 4-3-3, but was oftentimes a 4-2-4, like, high up the field with two false nines almost, I just think it, it so flummoxed Arsenal that it took them a very long time. You could see Granit Xhaka being really, really frustrated. You could see a lot of back and forth. And Mohamed Elneny kept, I think, being pulled out and not really knowing what was being asked of him. And to some extent, I feel like the system itself, plus the one-goal lead, so flummoxed Arsenal that Man City were just like, okay, we can just keep doing this if y'all want to figure it out anytime soon. And by the time they sort of did, the game was pretty much over. Yeah, Raheem Sterling getting the early goal from a Riyad Mahrez cross. Uh, the two shortest Man City players uh, on the field in the box and one of them getting a free header completely unmarked there Rob Holding not covering himself in glory there and talking about Rob Holding and um, and Hector Bellerin there I looked at the heat map Manchester Man City's heat map and it's very heavily concentrated in the sort of left channel in the in the final third so where Raheem Sterling where Gundogan and a bit of uh, Silva was sort of uh, moving around as well so I thought that was interesting that was their their most concentrated area and Graham it did seem like Sterling once again a Sterling performance I can't believe I just did that sorry 
<laughs> that that's terrible. But yeah, Sterling was not terrible. He was he was very good in this game. And I, 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 I'm interested that you mentioned Bellerin because he's he's in my notes, not just from a de- defensive point of view, but from an attacking point of view as well. I thought his decision making throughout the game was was really atrocious. And I think I might have actually mentioned this on 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 the pod before, where you know Hector Bellerin he 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 burst through. He was the most exciting fullback in the Premier League for a season. Obviously, injuries have hindered him, but now fitness. Fitness is not really a concern for him anymore. This is his best season in terms of fitness for a long time, but mm. he, he doesn't really offer much. The number of times that, that Odegaard was an option inside, he had a poor game as well, actually, I should say, but the number of times that Odegaard was inside and he would overlook that pass and run into a blind alley in the byline and and have a cross blocked or something, it was astonishing. And it, yeah, for, it, for me, it just, just going back to the, the system from Man City, um, I, I think I might have read this in a... In a in a tweet or an article so it's not a, it's not an original thought but someone someone pointed out it was as if when city scored that goal 2 minutes in they set themselves a task of right shall we see if we can we just see if we can see this game out for the next 88 minutes and almost like treat it like a training exercise where they just held arsenal at arm's length and and as you say never got out of got out of second gear and that's the kind of control that they have i mean pep guardiola was wearing his comfies in the dugout he was basically wearing to a Premier League match what I wear on the couch to watch One Division. It was exactly the same. Uh, so yeah, he, that's how comfortable he is right now in his job. He's turning up in a in a hoodie. Um, that's like Tony Soprano not getting out of his bathrobe to like show disrespect when they're in a meeting. That's what it feels yeah. like. It's like, hello, former protege. I'm not going to treat you with even a full suit on this one. I'm going to wear slippers and have a cup of tea and stop managing two minutes in. I mean, yeah. uh, Guardiola's look was still better than Julian Lopetegui's divorced dad, uh, Sopranos extra <laughs> look, to be Always. fair, though. Can I, can I say two, two things? One about that right side. One about Martin Odegaard, Graham. I agree with you. I, I genuinely, when I watched this game, I didn't look at the lineups, and I was watching it live, and I just thought, like, why won't Mikel Arteta give Martin Odegaard more of a chance? Like, he didn't get a chance at Real Madrid. Like, he's a very good player. Why not start him and see what he can do? And then about 22 minutes in, the commentator mentioned Odegaard's name, and that was when I realized he was on the field. So, yes, I don't <laughs> think he had a... A particularly good game I don't think he was like necessarily very confident in the attack it didn't seem like he yeah. was trying to penetrate lines or break lines it seemed like I think he didn't want to make fundamental mistakes and that maybe limited a bit as well and then with that right hand side for Arsenal I also think you got to look a little bit further forward to Pepe who doesn't really help uh Actabella in a lot and I think wasn't providing a lot of cover and I do think that is part of the reason why Man City were focused down that side. I think Arsenal have... I'm not breaking any new ground here when I say this, but I think Arsenal have some problems they got to figure out, guys. I think you might be right there. And uh, <laughs> on that um, concentration of uh, Man City's uh, play on the left flank, I thought that maybe Tierney uh, and Saka were what, two of the better players on the yeah. other flank. That's probably Agreed no coincidence um, that that was the case. I've got a theory with Arsenal in this game. I think they treated this as a free hit, which many people... When, when City were in their Ooh. sort of pomp in 2017-18... Most teams did that, didn't they? We'll treat, we'll treat this game as a free hit. I think they've done that because they've realised they've got the big Europa League game, the, the second leg with Benfica coming up, and they're kind of, kind of putting their chips in that basket. Who's with me on my conspiracy theory? Graham, you with me? It's certainly a big game for them, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 I don't know whether it's the the fact there's no fans in the stadium. It, ju- it just feels like the fact that Arsenal are having a dreadful season has kind of been overlooked a little bit I know I know for up until Christmas there was a lot of pressure on Arteta then he went on a little bit of a run and that bought him more time but I think if they drop out of the Europa League I think that thrusts that into focus that okay well we're not winning the Europa League either and we're literally in 10th in the Premier League table with two-thirds of the season played I think at that point that could be a bit of a turning point for, for Arteta in terms of the pressure he's coming under so maybe maybe yeah, Ryan, I like your theory better than mine, which was going back to a thing I did when I was like 16. I forgot my team was losing and thought it was nil-nil. And so then when we scored a goal, I was like, we're winning, we're doing great. And my whole team was just like, no, that's not what's <laughs> happening here. And I like there were moments in this game when I was like, Arsenal know they're not drawing right now, right? Like it, they, the lack of urgency was something. So I do think that since there are a bunch of scoreboards around the field that show what the actual score was, I'm going to go with your theory over mine, Ryan. Okay, that sounds good to me. A um, couple of things I wanted to bring up. Uh, Jonathan Lewin, The Guardian, wrote a piece which I think was inspired by Graham Rutherford talking about um, João Cancelo being a symbol of Man City's thirst for carnage. Uh, normally a versatile fullback, the Portuguese played an elusive anti-role in this game, popping up in places you would least expect. Do you, did you get credit for that one, Graham? No, I didn't. I'm still waiting for that <laughs> commission. 
<laughs> the Guardian. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be in men voice at some point. <laughs> um, the, the other thing I wanted to mention was Aubameyang uh, for Arsenal. Um, any idea what's going on here? He just seemed like. You know that meme of the guy with the stick saying, come on, do something? Yeah. That's what I was thinking with, with a lot of Aubameyang's well, performance here. Not not terribly physical, not really trying to beat anyone. bit troubling. My my kind of slightly embarrassing confession on this game is, and I was, I was writing an article on this game, was it, when Lacazette is getting ready to come off the bench, and this is well into the game, I think maybe after 70 minutes or something, mm-hmm. um, I'm slightly confused as to why Aubameyang, and this is totally, I'm not, this is totally true, um, I'm confused as to why Aubameyang's not the one coming on for Arsenal and then yep. check who scored and oh right Aubameyang started this match <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't noticed him the whole match that's how anonymous so that, he was that's a good sign for when when I didn't notice their number 10 for the first 20 or so minutes and you didn't notice their number nine for the first 70 minutes that's maybe indicative of a problem yeah, yeah. and <laughs> nobody will remember this game ever again in a few Oof. months time Wow. <laughs> on that note, we should probably move on. Why don't we talk about West Ham against Tottenham? This one uh, finishing 2-1 to West Ham. Uh, this With three points in six matches, this is the worst run of form for Jose Mourinho's entire managerial career. This was uh, the first uh, David Moyes victory over Jose Mourinho. West Ham, best team in London, as I mentioned, they're in fourth place. Tottenham down in ninth. A strange game, this one, uh, Taylor, because I thought, at least for the second half, Tottenham were actually quite good. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Tottenham were poor necessarily. I think it's the same thing as we talked about with Arsenal a little bit. I think the attack sputtered. I think there wasn't... It's just the things that have worked in the, in the past of Son Heung-min being terrifying and Harry Kane being lethal. If that's not on, if you're able to mark them out of the game, I think Tottenham then run into a lot of problems. I think that's pretty clear when you look at the double substitution that Jose is desperately trying to change things up. But I think Jose also, in my mind at least, kind of hit the nail on the head in the post, post-match comments. He, he very clearly clarified that he wasn't saying it in negative, but it was that they played a game West Ham fought. And that stands out to me, that I think there was more of that fight with West Ham. I think yeah. Jose always goes back to that one a little bit. We know that from the uh, All or Nothing documentary, that it was always about how Tottenham didn't have enough fight. And maybe that's kind of a tired phrase, a tired explanation from him. But I think that was pretty evident in this game, just how much West Ham were up for this one and how they scrapped for everything. Tottenham less so. Yeah, that cliche of wanting it more seemed obvious here. They seemed like they were mm-hmm. much more physical, were West Ham. In this one, you look at the first goal, sort of Kufal and Suchek, they just bullied the ball forward, basically. Reguilon ended up, up on his butt, and whether you call that a foul or not, it was certainly, uh, the, the intention was there from West Ham. And um, one, one of the points I made in, in our notes before this is that with West Ham at the moment, they've got organisation and they've added some quality. That's kind of maybe a, a core reason why they're doing quite well this season. With Tottenham, they added the quality, and they haven't added the organisation, yeah. which is bizarre because that's a real tenet of Jose Mourinho, organising a defence. And you look at that first goal, I free, if you freeze frame it from the side angle when uh, so, uh, Antonio gets in between the defenders and pokes it in, there are seven Spurs shirts in the box. Five of them are behind the penalty spot, standing still, just sort of hovering around. Four West Ham shirts further forward than those five shirts. So they're outnumbered in, uh, the Spurs are outnumbering West Ham in the box, but no one doing anything. No, It just seems like... What, what what is this system? What is happening here? I was very confused, Graham, about the lack of organisation and sort of the lack of quality running throughout this Spurs team for large swathes of this game. Yeah, and, and Taylor mentioned Mourinho's post-match comments there. That's one of the most frustrating things. It's not necessarily that what Mourinho says is incorrect. It's more that the the tone he takes as if it's yep. got nothing to do with him. <laughs> yep. So he comes out after the match and, you know... Keep in mind, when he first went in at Spurs, he said that he he felt the squad was good enough. The reports at the time led us to believe that was one of the main reasons why he got the job was because Daniel Levy wasn't really willing to to rebuild the squad. He wanted someone who'd come in and get more out of the players that they already had. Mourinho said he could do that. And then after this defeat to West Ham, he comes out and he says words to the effect of, the squad has problems that I, I cannot address as a coach, well, sorry, Josie, that's what you have you have been brought in to do. And this is a trend at his last three clubs. It's happened at Spurs, it happened at Manchester United, and it happened laterally in his last season at Chelsea, where his his best players stop performing when the organisation disappears. And Mourinho, every time, has sort of 
painted it as if he's the unfortunate one. Oh, what bad luck I have that these players stop performing. Um, maybe there's a trend here, Josie, and maybe you should look a little bit <laughs> inward as your role as a coach. It's not this, just that this keeps happening to you at every club and, and, and it's down to bad luck. So that's the frustrating thing for me after this game was it's not necessarily that I disagree with what, what he says. I think Spurs do have a little bit of an imbalanced squad. There are some areas that they need to improve, but you you need to take some responsibility as well, Josie. And you're not performing as a manager right now. I I would agree with that, and I would like emphasize the idea that it's it to me is a product of the way Mourinho manages. I think you could extend this to other managers. I think it could go to Klopp. I think it has gone to Vs Bosch, for example, in the past when he was at Tottenham. That if you have a very specific system, if it is in this case Jose's, like we're fighting for everything, we're going to be defensive, we're going to counter, we're going to frustrate, everybody's got to be locked in and hyper-focused. When that works, his teams are challenging for the title, and when you're challenging for the title, you feel that motivation. If you're if you're right there, if you're first or second, and, and it's live or die, if we go out and win this game, we're going to go top of the table, there is that everybody switched on, everybody's locked in. When you're ninth and... It's like, ah, if we win, we go eighth, maybe? Like, it, it, you just, it, I think it's harder to get that buy-in, and that's where I think his managerial approach becomes a little bit more of a problem, that if you're not getting everybody to buy in and your entire emphasis is on, like, team commitment, then you're going to struggle to kind of create and figure out a way to get past teams like West Ham. Uh, I should say that not in a, like, negative way, since West Ham are currently in the Champions League spots, but I do <laughs> think that that's part of it, is if you're mid-table, it's harder to think this is a life-and-death game. It's more like, eh, this is an 8th or 10th game. Yeah, yeah, and I wonder, uh, guys, if if um, if it's simply a case that Jose needs better defenders for his system to work. Uh, with all due respect to the Spurs back line, but I mean, Sanchez and Dyer is that mm-hmm. the winning centre-back combo? And I know that Eric Dyer, we've seen it in the documentary, he's kind of the, 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 the Jose's spirit animal. He's Dyer Wolf, if you will, uh, <laughs> on, the, on the field. Um, but um, it's not quite working out in the back line, is it? And I mean, it's not so that they haven't spent money. I mean, Sanchez was pretty expensive. Uh, Aldo Vireld, I mean, he, he, he's, I think he's on a decent contract and just twiddling his thumbs at the moment. I mean, is is it a case that they just don't have the quality, or am I being too kind on Jose there? I think I think it's it's not as much. I mean, it, I wouldn't say it's just the center backs. I would say like match of the day did a good job of diagramming the first goal, and Lucas Mora just completely does not track Antonio. I think it's the first goal for it. Might have just been a, a very good shooting opportunity, but there's so many moments when that defense is just completely stranded and has to kind of uh, like improvise defenses because they're not getting tracked back. They're not getting coverage. I think it's why Eric Lamella comes out at halftime as well. Uh, and mm. and so I think it is a, a sort of commitment issue across the squad. Then we do go back to the age-old conversation of, yeah, is Davidson Sanchez like the best defender in the Premier League? Probably not. Is Eric Dyer naturally a center back? Probably not. And so we do have those question marks that maybe cover the fact that there are more question marks around other parts of this team, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. How about the question mark around Gareth Bale, Graham? Hmm. Um, I felt like he auditioned for a start in this team pretty well in this game. Thoughts on that? Yep, and I thought I thought he did that in the Europa League game against uh, Wolfsburger dur- during the week. I thought I-, I actually thought he was going to start this match o- on the right side over over Lucas Moura. And yeah, I think when he came on, it there was much more urgency about Spurs. Um, they looked a lot better in the last what twenty five minutes. Mm. Um, and you'd say that probably the next match, Bill in the in the Premier League, Bill has has to start. But th- I think. That is not a good sign of Spurs' structure, in that he the reason he was the, the reason Spurs picked up was on the back of his individual brilliance, not a tactical change or anything like that. And so that that feels very um, sort of anti-Mourinho. It doesn't feel like something Mourinho would have done in the past is rely on a, on an individual player, throw him on, and just go right, go and change the game on your own, and and, and just. Uh, adds to my belief that Jose as a, as a coach is, is in a little bit of trouble right now and, and that goes beyond what's happening at Spurs right now. He, he kind of needs to reinvent himself a little bit. Mm. Reinvent himself, like, Pep, like Pepper's done in a way. But uh, is, 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 is Mourinho capable of that, Taylor? I'm not, I'm not convinced. No, I don't think he is, at least not in that regard. Because like Pep's is, I would say, an evolution, a refinement of what he's doing. Like Jose... To go into like we're going to be a proactive passing goal scoring team is a fundamental change in his entire coaching philosophy. So yeah, I agree with Graham. I think he's 
got some issues to figure out, and I am happy I don't have to figure them out for him. Yeah, well, uh, he's got Deli Ali by his side, microwaving baked beans and missing shots <laughs> well, that uh, I... get past the hurricane when he should have been shooting, but hey. That's go. but see okay that that like is is it's it's a question I have like yeah Dele Ali is still there and for West Ham like <laughs> we have Jesse Lingard scoring and mm. that to me feels like it's Manchester United like moving on players that don't fit the system they go to another club and now they're performing well it doesn't feel like Tottenham are doing that aspect of things either they're not moving players on they're not kind of like there was the conversation about they were going to swap uh, uh, Deli Ali for a player from PSG or they were going to get some reinforcements and that doesn't seem to be happening either it seems like lots of different things are stalling at Spurs right now. It was quite fun to see Jesse Lingard score there and the dancing and everything. Do you, <laughs> yeah. as a Man United fan, do you celebrate him still? I, I, I think I would do if I was in your shoes. Um, if you had asked me this before the game, I would have said no. I was surprised by how excited I was for him. It yeah. really, like, he's just, he's such a, like, a, a happy energy person. Him screaming for Marcus Rashford when he scored and just, I think he was a very good locker room person. That he's already coming to West Ham and has the entire team, like, uh, miming uh, a band, <laughs> like I think that speaks volumes about what he's bringing to the training ground. So yeah, I think I still I still cheer for him. I don't think it would be like Jesse Lingard is my man. I'm getting a West West Ham uh, Lingard jersey. I wouldn't get personalized jerseys for anybody but you and Graham. Uh, but aside from, but I still think yeah, I'll, I'll cheer for Jesse Lingard. Why not? One of my favorite Graham's- things. Uh, sorry, one of my favorite things about this match was Twitter trying to name the band that yeah. they were in. So Backstreet Moys <laughs> or. <laughs> Moist to men. <laughs> That's another good one. Not, not... I think Backstreet Moyes is solid. Yeah, neither <laughs> neither are, are my jokes, but that, that that was one of my favorite things about about this game. Yeah, I'll I'm still not... give you credit. We'll put that in the Guardian payment for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, th- speaking of David Moyes, interesting to see how um, he's doing so well at West Ham at the moment. Um, I saw a fan theory, by the way, that they're actually doing very well, particularly at home, because they don't have the negativity of West Ham fans who are pretty unhappy being at the London Stadium and always on their team's back. I mean, there's, there's something in that, isn't there? It's interesting to think about that. I have, I have to say that did cross my mind during this match, because my, my first thought was how typical that West Ham fans have gone through all this pain over these years, and now they're challenging for the Champions League and they're not in the stadium. And then, my, as, as you say, my next thought was, Maybe that's the reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe, that, maybe it was the fans' fault all along. But yes, uh, this season, I mean, the, you go back to the summer, there were protests. They didn't, I don't think they signed a single player because Suchek was on loan from January and they made that. They made that permanent. Permanent, yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, technically they made one signing, but not, not really. They made not a single signing. David Moyes was an unpopular manager and the owners were facing protests from fans. And this season's come out of that. I mean, it feels a. L- feels a little bit like a fluke to be honest it wasn't planned <laughs> Some, yeah something's yeah. gone wrong with the timeline hasn't it because they West Ham fans did all think they'll be fighting relegation this season yet here we are they were very annoyed at the ownership and yeah wow what can you yeah, say yeah I, I agree because like like the Sebastian Allaire move where they sell him to Ajax for 30 million or more than 30 million like if 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 West Ham are in 16th that is very much like what are you guys doing like why would you sell this player that you spent so much money on when you didn't really give him that much of an opportunity why are you letting Carlos Sanchez leave on a free year loaning out Felipe Anderson there's a lot of moments that I think if things don't go well you flip it around and you're like well that was why they weren't very good but in this situation because they're doing what they're doing it becomes like oh they're maybe they're geniuses and they're getting rid of a lot of players that weren't buying into the system or weren't fighting and now you've got Declan Rice covering 80 yards and marking four players at once oh calling West Ham's ownership group geniuses is a step too far but that's um, probably true (laughs) (laughs) but they're doing very well regardless one one note of caution note when David Moyes did uh, finish fourth with Everton 17th the next season so mm-hmm. get ready for the Moyes roller coaster, the Moyser coaster for those Moyster men out there in London. Uh, we shall move on to some a couple more derbies from the continent very shortly after these important commercial messages. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Let's 
turn our attentions to Italy and more specifically the San Siro, the Derby della Madonnina, Milan against Inter. This one finished 3-0 to the visitors into Milan, I think we'll call them. Um, before the game, they were separated by one point with, uh, as of course, 16 games to go. It's been a decade since they were the, the top two spots in the league. So very exciting stuff, particularly if you don't have much affinity for Juventus. It seemed, Graham, to me from the outset that one manager got this right and one manager got this pretty wrong. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a brilliant performance from Inter. At no point in the match did I, did I think that... I mean, I know Handanovic makes a, a couple big saves from uh, Ibrahimovic uh, yep. um, within seconds of each other as well, but it, 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 it never felt like... It never felt to me like there was going to be any other weather, winner other than Inter. And really, it was just... I loved how fast and furious they were in, in, in the attack, particularly Romel Lukaku. I think this is probably one of the best games I've ever seen him play, if not yeah. the best game, which is saying something because obviously the, the career he's had. But I'm just so pleased that, there, that there's a man, he's now playing for a manager who appreciates what he offers because obviously he's been typecast throughout his career, particularly in, in the Premier League, as this as, as this big target man to hit with crosses and long balls. And, and really he's he's not that player at all. And this this performance showed that. It was a brilliant all-round performance, not just in the, in, in the goals he scored, but... Um, the cross he put in for uh, Lataro Martinez, I think that at the moment has to be the best strike partnership in Europe right yeah. now. They're, they're always looking for each other. Obviously, it's maybe a little bit rare at the moment and the, the way the game is right now that you play two strikers in the way that Conte does, but they're always looking for each other. The slide pass across the box, is, particularly from Lukaku to Martinez, has become a little bit of a trademark of this Inter team. Um, Lukaku's got five assists. He's assisted Martinez five times this season, so... Yeah, as I say, probably the best strike partnership in Europe right now. And and it was just a performance that showed everything good. There have been some moments this season where Inter, their bad qualities have come to the fore, particularly towards the end of last year. But this was a performance that showed everything good about them under Antonio Conte. Yeah, very, very impressive stuff. And Lukaku was quite superb. I think I agree with you. It did show his full gambit, didn't it? With the crossing, with the with the pace, the power, the finishing here. The finishing, which is getting much better uh, from him. And, and the link-up play. He's, he's, he's just got everything at the moment. It's interesting. I was uh, looking at some threads on, on Reddit after this. And I, I thought that uh, I was quite impressed with Hakimi in this. Uh, so I think he started the move for the second goal. And I thought he was very good. And I saw a Dortmund fan saying, can we have him back? And yeah. an Inter, Inter fan replying, oh, only if we can have Erling Haaland. And then the comments being, well, you know, you've got Lukaku playing like this. You don't really need Erling Haaland if he's this good at the moment, right, Taylor? Uh, I would agree. I think Inter fans might be a little bit more nervous. There was the financial reporting that they like aren't paying the uh, the terms of Hakimi's deal, I believe. Uh, yeah, so maybe they'll still keep uh, Ashraf Hakimi, and I think they will really hope they do. And I agree with you, Ryan, that I think right now with Lukaku and Martinez, and to Graham's point, that partnership is so strong, and Lukaku... I mean, I watched him for Man United. This was better than any performance I saw for, from him there. And I think part of that is the, the belief of the manager. And then part of that is just the confidence in his game. And I liked that in this one, there were the, there were the moments like I, I saw the tweets of like, ah, oh, but his first touch isn't very good. And then I watched him like bring it down under pressure and turn somebody. And then it was, well, his hold up yeah. play isn't very good. Well, there's that play that just happened where it was pretty impressive. Well, his finishing is suspect. He's not always consistent. An excellent goal in this game. Like, I just think he he ticked so many boxes. I think the only criticism that remains after this game is like, well, can he do it in the next game? And I guess we'll have to find out in that next game. Yeah, rubbing it in the face of his nemesis uh, Zlatan on the other side yeah, of the field as well, fun. which is quite fun to see. And he get, yeah. uh, Zlatan getting sl- subbed off uh, not long after um, uh, Lukaku's brilliant third goal, which had that shades of R9 Ronaldo about it. Um, yeah. I, I really want to pick out uh, Intel's um, midfield as well. It just seemed across the board they were superb. Barella was wonderful. Hikimi, as I mentioned, was great. Uh, Perisic thought was a lot of trouble here, as he has been recently. And Christian Eriksen, yeah. who was like... Peak Eriksson conducting the midfield and that sort of cool, perfectly timed passes. They're back, baby. I mean, it's, it's just al- the alchemy has hit a good point with this team, Graham. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Christian Eriksson because he's, he's in my notes. I mean, the, the, going into the January window, the, the, there were inter-directors uh, openly talking about Christian Eriksson leaving the club in, in January. He was linked with uh, West Ham and a return to Spurs and it really just seemed like a matter of time until he left and uh, Inter. And, and all of a sudden, he, as you say, it's like Pete Christian Eriksen at, 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 at right now for, for Inter. He, he is playing a slightly different sort of position. He's not playing in the on the on the left side as as he did um, for Spurs or even as a sort of number ten. He has had to adapt his game into 
much more of a, I guess, a, a more orthodox central midfielder, although he does have a little bit of, of freedom to, to push forward, as, as we saw in this game a number of times. But yeah, well, brilliant performance from, from him. And, and that, that midfield unit, you know, Perisic on, on the left, Akimi on the right, Barella, who I think the way he's going, he is one of the best central yep. midfielders in European mm. football at the moment. He only seems to be improving. Every time I watch him, he seems to be better and better. You know, Brozovic, we know what he can do. He's, he's an experienced head in there. And, then, and now Christian Eriksen has added to that to that mix. So it's not just the, the attackers for into the moment. That midfield unit and, and the wingbacks included in that unit is, is just on top form right now. It, the Inter squad is so interesting to me because it's it's world-class names that everybody knows, Lautaro Martinez, Romelu Lukaku, Ashraf Hakimi. But then there's these other players, as you mentioned, Graham, like Brozovic, like Borella to some extent, even like Samir Handanovic, that I think are very, very good, but for whatever reason, don't get that level of attention and maybe should. And once you start to give them that attention, suddenly that full 11 looks very, very strong. Uh, I also thought with, with the with the lineup that Conte went with, it reminded me of like an MLS all-star approach of like, you know what? Uh, Alfonso Davies is a left center back now. Like we got to get him on the field somehow. I loved Ivan <laughs> Perisic as a left wing back and Atraf Hakimi as a right wing back. Both of them essentially functioning as forwards pretty consistently. Uh, it, it was a very attacking team uh, that made me very happy to see. And then Nico Barella being in any team just makes me happy. I'm with you on that one, Graham. Yeah, definitely. And um, if we focus our attention on AC Milan, it seemed like they were struggling to play out the back a bit. I didn't think they had a lot of width, but one of the key issues I think was the strength of Inter's midfield, sort of um, mm-hmm. making it really hard for Kessie, who's such an important player for Milan. He didn't just—he just seemed to never have a good passing option, um, and and I think a lot of that was down to the the overload that Inter created in in with their midfield as well. Is that anybody with me on that one, Taylor? I am. Uh, yeah, because I think what they were trying to do was uh, with Romagnoli and Kair. I, I think I finally know how to pronounce his name. I yeah. think the idea was to find Tonali as like the point of the triangle, and then he could distribute the ball. I think Inter did a really good job of hassling Tonali every single time he yeah. got the ball, and sometimes before he even got the ball. And so once you've kind of removed him from the equation, it becomes incumbent on Kessie to drop in and become the other option. And so then you're having to have him adjust what he does automatically. But then if you put somebody on him, you're putting him in an uncomfortable position and he has that pressure. And I think Inter did a really good job of sort of nullifying one threat and then immediately nullifying the other and essentially just forcing Milan Long to Zlatan every single time and kind of frustrating him, getting him into physical confrontations that are going to wear him down. And it goes the way it goes. Yeah, it's interesting with Zlatan because he did did have a few chances in this game, but is it is it a case of the, he didn't provide the leadership that was needed, perhaps to a certain extent? Uh, you know, he's he's he, there's, he's got himself some history in this rivalry now, mm. and he's gotten caught up in the wrong things. I think in in the last few games between these sides, and maybe he just wasn't didn't have his head in the game. Graham, am I am I talking in vagaries here a bit too much? But you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, there was a real sense this weekend of uh, who's winning the breakup from Manchester United, not just between Ibrahimovic uh, <laughs> and uh, Lukaku, but Mourinho and Moyes <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and it's and it's the, the two former Everton uh, figures that came out on top. I mean, Ibrahimovic, I, I know he and he likes to glorify himself in in, in this respect as well. He he likes to. The whole, the whole thing with him is he can do it all on his own, but he, he, he is, what, 39 now, 38, 39 years old? Um, he does need a supply line, and I just felt Inter did such a good job, as as you mentioned there, with the way they, they pressured Tonali. That was the one I noticed, actually, was just how Tonali was being denied this, the time and space on, on the ball, and, mm. and, and I just think that had a knock-on effect with, with Ibrahimovic. He, there's only so much he can do with the the sort of uh, service that he got. And actually, he still had a good couple of chances um, in the game, which he probably should have scored if it hadn't been for a brilliant save from Handanovic. One, one big story to do with uh, Ibrahimovic in the Italian press when I went looking through the, the, the newspapers today is that he is booked for the ne- for next week. He's booked for five days at an Italian music festival. Now, as a, as he's going to be doing a duet with uh, Milahovic, the former inter midfielder at, on one of the days but the other days it just seems he's been booked to be a guest and this was agreed before he signed his his AC Milan extension so there's no way for him to get out of it so he's not going to be training ne- as much next week because he's going to be at a music festival um hang on they're having music what? festivals right now <laughs> what yeah I, yeah th- uh, yeah the, I, I think he might 
I'm, I'm confused. I am confused. <laughs> I have to admit. I, I think he it might be do, be doing it might be getting done remotely. But then I'm confused as to how he's doing a duet with Milhovic. How are you both skipping over that Zlatan is doing a duet? How are we focused <laughs> on the logistics of things? And that is not the first thing that I. Having recorded with Ryan way too many times, I was ready for this to be a setup for some elaborate pun, Graham. That's where I thought we were going with this. He is actually <laughs> performing a duet with Sinisa Mihailovic. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, that's that's what that's is happening great. on one of the, on one of the days. Yeah, and, and this is a big story in the, in the Italian press because obviously it's not ideal that he's going to be at this thing for a full week. What, what is happening? Oh my god, this is my favorite thing I've heard all weekend. Thank you for that. Is, I hope we do, do. We find out what song it is. I'm picturing it being like a Grease medley. Ibra loving happens so fast. <laughs> if it's not, I Ryan, he needs to hire you as his agent and talent scout. Uh, that's outstanding work by both of you. I am so confused by this. And if ever there were an indicator that Zlatan maybe is not the like mind locked on the game and the competitiveness of Milan. Maybe this is the anecdote versus what, say, Lukaku was doing for Inter. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get over that now. We've got to move Oof. on from this game, I think. Um, How? We... <laughs> <laughs> we need to follow up and investigate on that one. In the meantime, we've gone pretty long. We've got one more game to cover, though. Uh, the Rivera derby. Let's go to Gilsenkirchen for Schalke against Dortmund. Schalke 04 living up to their name, 4-0 to Dortmund this one finished uh, could be the last Revere Derby in the Bundesliga for a little while uh-huh. um, and, anything before we get to Dortmund anyone have anything good to say about Schalke I mean uh, Matthew Hoppe uh, we haven't done hopping with the Hopper for a while and uh, he Nor had one Schalke. <laughs> there we go <laughs> I noticed he had one shot which he could have stole a ball uh-huh. away from Mats Hummels and had this point blank, point blank shot saved from an acute angle Anything else that Schalke did? Anyone wants to shout out? Yeah, Christian Gross he... is Schalke. Christian Gross still there, by the way. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the positivity. Christian Gross is still there. I think Hoppy, like, there are so many cautionary tales about players. I mean, Odegaard being one of them. Like, pl- players moving before they maybe should and stick with a team that are giving you minutes. If he wants to be in the Bundesliga too, sure. But uh, Matthew Hoppy needs a move because, he, like, so much of what I think we saw from him early on was energy and enthusiasm and then the ability to back it up but it was running at people and putting people under pressure I mean that's what that shot comes from is him just sort of frustrating Mats Hummels winning the ball getting the shot off as you continue to lose games and you don't get service and the entire attack becomes can Hoppy charge somebody down and make something happen I think the frustration grows the willingness to do that sort of running diminishes and then so too does your performance so I kind of hope he gets a move I kind of hope the same for Amin Haritz and I just feel bad for a lot of other people because this did feel like the commentators when I was watching were sort of like, are they cursed? Is this Schalke cursed? Yeah. Did they do something? Was somebody buried somewhere? Did somebody build something that they shouldn't have? Something has happened because Schalke not having a very strong season. I, I mean, I was being was... a bit cheeky by leading into them saying, was, did they do anything good? Because they weren't terrible. And I think Sadar hit the post as well. And as yeah. you mentioned, I think Harit wasn't bad at all. But like that fourth goal, Erling Haaland's fourth goal, he just... Uh, it's Chan. Emre Chan just runs through the middle, just completely unmolested. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. It's like, oh yeah, just just go for it. It's like a, a rec game where it's um, you know everyone's been running and they're all a bit all a bit tired. Just let him go through, see what he does. Was basically the the, the defending vibe there. Graham, I think I cut you off there. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the shout curse comes from when they dug out that tunnel that they have, which has the uh, same yeah. vibes as the Pirates of the Caribbean queue. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think they need to. I actually will miss that tunnel in the Bundesliga. It's yeah. one of my favorite things about the Bundesliga, is that tunnel. But uh, so maybe, and, and also they need to get rid of the the the, the numbers and their name as a club because the last time we spoke about Schalke, they lost four 0 to to Bayern Munich. Oh, it feels yeah. like temp- it feels like tempting fate. It's like when Chelsea put that number three on their shirt at the start of the season and started conceding three goals in every single game. So I think there is something in the curse there, Taylor, that, that you mentioned. The tunnel and the numbers. Well, building on just that... Just reverse Graham, it. That's the problem. They're 4 <laughs> Just re- make it 40. And then you'll start <laughs> winning every game 4-0. That's obviously how it works. Oh, I don't know if you want to refer to Germany in the 40s. That's a tricky yeah. place to yeah. go. Uh, but uh, the, the um, yeah. one thing I did notice um, in the stadium was their mascot was sitting behind the goal as Dortmund was pummeling in some of these goals. <laughs> the sort of ridiculous looking mascot. So going on the Pirates of the Caribbean theme, we just need an animatronic Johnny Depp to be their mascot instead. So the Veltins Arena is complete for that experience. 
I think their spiritual mascot in this game was very strangely Bill O'Reilly because so much of this reminded <laughs> me of, of his, was it Access Hollywood or Entertainment Tonight where he was screaming, we'll do it live? Like, that we'll do it seemed live. To be the sh- Yeah, that seemed to be the Schalke energy of this one. I'm just like, I'll just kick it long. Whatever. Like, it was, it was so many moments. of just like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I'm getting rid of it. I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, and when they didn't do that, was it Stambouli who gives the ball away for the first goal? Just sort of like, you know what? You can yes. just have it. I don't need it anymore. I've had it long enough. We're fine. Yeah, Sancho's like, I'll take that. Thank you very much. Um, it was. <laughs> they almost came back into it after sort of the two nil time, yeah. if my memory serves me correct. But yeah, they, they, they were never going to get a result out of this one. But why don't we talk about Borussia Dortmund? Uh, Erling Haaland, the commentator on, on the highlights package. Uh, this boy has got whatever it is, but he's got it in bucket loads. This boy <laughs> has got whatever it is, but he's got it in bucket loads. I get the sentiment. Oling Holland's good, right, Jeff Graham? <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's a bit good. And also, you you, you mentioned um, in your notes that he he's now doing this sort of bear celebration. Yeah, as, yes. as he, which is uh, it's quite something. I am enjoying it for the moment. I'm I'm enjoying it. He's a little bit of a of a a Scott McTominay. This is the only time that I'm going to make that comparison. But in that, he, he is Holland getting taller. He seems to be an absolute <laughs> giant in the in the last in the last year. I think he's definitely got taller and bigger, uh, and so a, a man of that stature doing a bear like sort of celebration running up to you, Jude Bellingham. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have I fear, a theory I feared about it. for Jude Bellingham. So I did too. I feared for other players in the past, especially Gio Reyna, uh, because he is even smaller. Uh, my my theory is that Holland is now doing the bear thing to telegraph that I am about to maul you. Because it used to be that he would wait until the last second and then jump on the person, and I think they never saw it coming. And he did almost crush like three different people. So I, I think it's now he's trying to tell them 30 yards away. Like, I'm coming for you. Just prepare yourself. Get ready. Uh, and then the uh, the contact occurs. But I also agree with you, Graham, that he does seem to, like every time he scores a goal, it's like, oh, there's two more inches for him. He's now nine feet tall. Perfect. Oh yeah. my god! Just just imagine that coming towards you with his arms hulking out either side no, of thank him. You. He's happy, but is he? Oh my goodness! <laughs> my goodness! But uh, quite a, it's quite nice a, to see Jaden Sancho. Sorry, I, I I hijacked it there, right? I just wanted to say his combo with Jaden Sancho and Jaden Sancho doing things. Uh, I am not like the biggest Jaden Sancho believer. I don't know if I want to spend 120 million pounds if I'm Man United, but. The two of them, when they're combining and causing problems and just completely causing disarray for the opposition, is very fun to watch. Very fun, yeah, with Sancho getting the cross in for that pretty incredible volley that Haaland yeah. uh, uh, put away. Just showing another uh, string to his bow there. Very, very impressive performance from him. Uh, albeit, as we mentioned, against sort of uh, not emphatically good competition. Anyone, any, anyone for any more on this game? Graham, anything else on this one? Um... Not really, no. I just I, I thought uh, Dahoud was good. He scored a stunner against Sevilla during the week, and I, and I, yeah. I, th- I think I said when Axel Witzel got his injury, and I, um, you know you don't want to wish injury in anyone. That I, I actually thought that might improve Dortmund with Dahoud coming back into the team, and I think that's uh, panned out a little bit because he's he's playing quite well at the moment. Yeah, and Dahoud making way for England's Gio Reyna uh, for the last ten minutes as well, Taylor. I'm not giving it to you. I'm not giving it to you. And England's Erland Haaland as well. Correct. That Correct. one you can have. That one you can have. <laughs> All right, gents, I think we're just about ready to wrap this one up. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me on this intrepid journey through the weekend. Thank you, listener, for uh, indulging us for the last hour or so. Taylor, it's been a pleasure. Right back at you, my friend. Graham, love you very much. See you next week, What? (laughs) Graham gets love. I get nice to talk to you. I hate you guys. I'm out of here. I love you, Taylor. (laughs) Thanks, Graham. Love you, too. Goodbye, Ryan. (laughs) 